I'm a forward pressure fighter. I really like to strike. I uh, tend to try to push you up against the cage and punish you there. I'm really happy that we got the win. On the day that kind of made a little bit of history, I had a lot of people come before me in the LGBTQ community that helped me get to where I am. And I'm super thankful for that. History made on the gridiron and history made in the cage as inclusion in sports continues an impressive win streak in 2021. Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the conversions of sports, transness, science fiction, all things nerd and geek, and other stuff. And history is the word this week. A piece of the history was made by the last voice you heard. Carl Nassib, defensive end, Las Vegas Raiders, showed pride and poise back in June when he came out. The first out LGBTQ player in NFL history to be on an active roster. And then he showed his commitment to excellence. Yeah, in training camp, there was the press conference where he cleared the air about his announcement. But after that, gay wasn't the word. Rushing the quarterback was. And Nassib showed he could get to the passer. Showed John Gruden more than enough to make the squad and be a part of the main Raiders rotation at the position. Carl Nassib, however, still had more headlines to make. And when you know it, he picked quite a stage to make them. Monday Night Football. Overtime, Ravens, Raiders, tied at 27. Lamar Jackson, one of the fastest players in the league at any position, trying to find an open receiver, trying to escape. Carl Nassib wasn't having it. Got the sack, made the strip, Raiders recover the fumble, and then just leave it to Derek Carr and Zay Jones. 31-yard touchdown pass in sudden death to win it. Raiders do it 33-27. What a way to start a season and in many ways make a new beginning. But the start of the weekend is our focus, and it was the end of the beginning for Alana McLaughlin. 38-year-old Army Special Forces veteran who sat in our space a month ago and told us her story of hard times and high hopes in her bid to become the first transgender woman to step into the professional MMA ranks in seven years. After a one-month delay due to opponent Celine Provost being in COVID quarantine, it was finally time. Hot from Miami with the history unfolding, McLaughlin's fired up and had the trans flag rolling. She was ready for battle, but in the first round, Celine Provost took the fight to her. She's a boxing and kickboxing specialist, and those punches were landing. She did the job with her fist in that first round. The Carly card had it at 10-9. But in the second round, McLaughlin ran her game plan. Get her on the mat and keep her there. Got her down with the takedown and then got that rear chokehold. And finally, Provost had to give up the ghost. Tapped out McLaughlin getting that first career win, and both of them having a moment of mutual respect afterwards. For Alana McLaughlin and for MMA, it was a night of history. Her first fight in a debut win and the second trans woman to be 
in the MMA arena since Fallen Fox seven years ago. Commander Carly, computer reporting. Fallen Fox is on hailing frequency. Computer, for real. Well, by all means, beam her up. Energize. Fallen, welcome to the transporter room. Or in this case, welcome back to it. Outsports Triumph Award winner, pioneer, and just all-around general badass. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really good to be here after that wonderful fight. What was it like for you to be cage side for this fight? And oh, right from yeah, the jump, to see that introduction, to see that entrance that Alana made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish my first MMA fight would have been like that. But I wasn't out in my first MMA fight. She came out with the flag and, you know, as her first MMA fight and as a out and proud transgender woman. That was a pretty amazing thing to see and it was like history i was like i was sitting there watching history being made and it was a very exciting time and also the t-shirt which i by the way alana i want the t where'd you get the t-shirt i want one because oh if you want if you want one of those t-shirts all you have to do is go to darklight.com and spell kind of weird so all you gotta do is go to my social media pages which is twitter um just type in my name on twitter Instagram or Facebook, and you can find my uh, fan page there. And it's posted there uh, where you can find that amazing t-shirt. Um, and in addition, we're going to also post that at both our so uh, all our social media presence for the Transporter Room. Transporter room. We have a Twitter, we have a Facebook, and we have an Instagram. So we're also going to post it there because I want that shirt. I think everybody should have one. But on to the fight itself. First off, Early on, what what did we what were we watching? Because Salim Provo, Provost went up, apparently has the boxing skills. Wanted to make it a stand up boxing match, and early on, in Alana's own words, she was getting rocked early. Salim Provost is a very accomplished striker, so she's got a record. You know, she's had two. I think it was two or three professional fights before this um that was i believe four or five years ago and she took some time off and went to i believe did boxing and kickboxing um and sharpened her skills and that was apparent when she came back because see alana kept coming um straight through the center and um part of what provost was doing was coming off to the side and hitting her with, hitting her with jabs sometimes and that was I think messing up her game plan. So things went a little bit different. Alana got some really, really big shots. And I mean, she seemed more relaxed and calmed down. And then she seemed to to be her, her head got back into the game. I believe that's because probably because she was over getting rocked a little bit in the first round, she was able to get provost to the ground and ended up submitting her with the rear naked choke. Celine wants to box. So I said, fine, we're not going to box. We're going to do some BJJ. We're going to get some Brazilian jiu-jitsu in there, and I'm going to get you on that mat. And it just seems like Alana right, just I, kept moving forward and eventually got her shot and made that move in the second round. I, th I believe Alana was saying that was going to be her game plan in the interviews before was to like get her on the ground or something like that, or people were saying that should be her game plan. 
Um, but Alana's got more ground technique, and I pretty much figured that was going to be the game plan and wasn't surprised in the end when, when it was going in that direction. Prior to the fight, Alana cited you as not only an influence, but as a mentor and somebody who was a sounding board. What was the process that got her in the ring? Because according to Alana and according to Combate Globo, you were the catalyst for this. This night was built in part because you got the, the dots connected and the ball rolling. How did this come about and how did you play the role in it? Yeah. Well, first of all, I've known Alana for years. Um, I met her on Facebook and this was when she was in the beginning of her transition. And I watched her whole transition all the way through. But um, she said um, a couple years ago that she wanted to follow through on her dreams and becoming an MMA fighter like me. <laughs> so, yeah, um, she was she was training uh, at a few gyms uh, for about a year. Um, and then she moved down to florida for a few months to get prepared for this fight um yeah and i just spent a lot of time um mentoring her and you know pretty much telling her how the fight world is you know and and being someone that she can come to and talk to you know about being a transgender athlete and trans fighter in mma and you know trying to help guide her through some of the things that i had to go through so that, that she doesn't have to Take such a heart of a hit, you know. So, yeah. Gut reaction when her hand was raised. What was the first thing that came to your mind when you're seeing essentially what you're seeing in the background, my background right now, when you right. saw that cage side? Uh, relief. <laughs> relief that she had won the fight. Because, I mean, I knew this was going to be a tough fight for her, given that Provost is, you know, a pro is, is a more uh, ex uh, experienced fighter. Um, and Alana hadn't had, she hasn't had any amateur matches. She just went straight to pro. So all this pressure is uh, building on her, you know. Um, and the reason why she went straight to pro is because um, she was having trouble finding opponents in the amateur ranks. So she just had to. So I knew this was going to be a very tough fight, and I was just uh, relieved that she ended up winning in the end because it was tough. And Provost really came worth with it, and her experience really, really showed. Afterwards, it was worth it to have the ice cream after the fight. Oh, it was! Oh, it was! <laughs> I'm pretty sure she feels it was worth it to have the ice cream after the fight. Mm -hmm. You know, that was something we were looking forward to. For yourself, how important do you feel it was for her and for you that you were there, that you saw this unfold? I think it was important for me to see because it's like, you know, I felt like it's kind of, it was kind of like the passing of the torch, you know, and I kind of want to be there, you know, in person <laughs> to deliver that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure it was important for her me to be there you know i don't want to speak for her but i'm sure she was it was important for her for her for me to uh be there um because uh, i feel that she does look up to me so well i think it's 
I think that she's not alone in that category. Many of us, especially those of us who play sports and enjoy sports and enjoy being active, we do look up to you. I know I do. And Alana said so in my interview with her. This this step right now, you know, like right now I'm following in the footsteps of Fallon. Like once again, a black woman led the way. You know, Fallon took that first step. She was the first trans MMA fighter. Um, and now I'm following in her footsteps. I'm not the pioneer here. I'm, I'm not the tip of the spear. Um, I'm just another step along the way. But one thing, it seems like your moxie rubbed off on her because when all the guff came on social media after the fight, Alana definitely handled it, including a certain Jake Shields who she just basically oh. snatched, his, <laughs> snatched his edges up. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the comment section on that thread? Oh, oh my uh, gosh. Oh. oh, people people were giving him the business. Because oh, I think that's of the a statement. <laughs> yeah, because of the juxtaposition of the photo of her uh, pre-transition and, you know, after transition. Um, really wild stuff because as you when you when you see when you sit there and you look at the photo you can tell you can tell that she's smaller you can tell the the fat displacements on her body you can just tell that you know she's a totally different person you know than she was before so i don't know what the point of that even bringing that up was other than to self-own <laughs> but at another level do you still kind of shake your head and say we're still i mean she has gone through a, a similar vitriol to what you've gone through. And and especially at Outsports, we've categorized the continuing lies about you at length. But also, does it kind of give you hope to see that there's also the counter surge that is pushing back on this, that's pushing back on all the negativity and all the noise and all these supporters more and more are coming out and saying, no, we support her. That's one of us. And you're not messing with us. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I'm liking how things are going today versus how things went when I came out. Like, you know, I had some support, but it seems like today with Alana, there's more support with her than there was with me when I first came out. Um, I think that's progress. I think that's going to continue, and 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 I think I think that it's not just Alana and time; it's all of the other transgender athletes that have come out there, the ones who were uh, like Lauren Hubbard, um, and all of the other athletes who are at the Olympics, and and all the trans kids doing sports. Like all of this is like there's a lot more of us than there was yesterday, and it's starting to garner a lot of support. I think shifting <laughs> a little bit of gears to you, real quick. Um, what have you been up to? Because I know for, for starters, there is the there's the movie of your life, the biopic project. What is the status on that right now? Yeah, they're working on uh, the project. I can't say too much about it. Just that, you know, working on the project, um, working on scripting and, you know, a lot of other things. Um, but... You know, I, I would suspect that. I would suspect. I don't know for sure. I would suspect that would come out in a few years or so, or within that time frame. And 
Um, if anybody doesn't know, like um, it's being developed by Mark Gordon Pictures, and those are the same people who created um, Saving Private Ryan and the Steve Jobs biopic, among like a lot of other uh, big time films. So I think this this is going to be like a really really big film. I think it's gonna it should do very well. So um, I'll be a consultant on the film. And the writer on the film is T. Cooper and Allison Glock. Half of that, which is T. Cooper, is trans. So trans representation in the writing. Beyond the film, what else you get? What else are you up to? What are you grooving to these days? Yeah, I just did a photo shoot promotion for cards with Stack the Deck Against Hate, which and it's got me, Patricio Manuel, and uh, Mac Beggs, and. Uh, Another transgender athlete on um, McKenzie, I think her name is. But, um, oh, they got Grace McKenzie from um, from San Francisco Rugby is also a part of that. Yes, Grace, Grace, Grace McKenzie. Grace McKenzie is a part of that. And so um, all the proceeds go to, I think, Lambda Legal. So it's very, very, really good for especially like kids, trans kids, and, and just cisgender kids to like have these cards and realize, you know, about transgender athletes and have a piece of history. If there's one prime memory that you, that you'll take away from this past weekend, what do you think it will be? Wow. I think it'll be, um, just that I was able to witness a historic moment. The second trend professional transgender MMA fighter, you know, came and fought and won. Yeah. It was just a really exciting time. And I'm glad that we have this representation. It all began with you. No, oh, thank let's you. Not ever forget, <laughs> and let's not ever forget that. Fallon Fox, thank you for giving us this analysis on the transporter room. And I'll tell you, any, you have an open invitation for this space. Anytime, we're here for you. All right. Thank you very much. And I'll take you up on that offer the next time. Thanks again, Fallon, for being with us. And you heard that noise. You know what that means. we got to give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, we have another big voice in our community joining us. Katie Montgomery will be beamed up to talk about how hard it is to be trans on Turf Island. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay-Webb, and now it's time for our special guest segment this week. And if you think being trans in the United States is hard, try being trans in Britain. Transgender life has been under a constant barrage in recent years by the current Tory government by, and by the press, which has bolstered one of the most toxic climates for LGBTQ people in the United Kingdom since the Thatcher era. At the center is a brutal gender critical movement. Some of that movement is in a strange partnership as self-ID'd feminist with elements of the American Christian right in groups such as the Heritage Foundation and the Alliance Defending Freedom. It's behind this backdrop that many transgender Brits live 
a life of quiet desperation. If you don't believe me, consider what Abigail Thorne had to say at the Trans Resistance March in London earlier this year. I don't want pity. I don't want condescension or charity. I don't even want visibility and representation. I want control over my own goddamn life. Another voice that is singing out that frustration and singing in resistance is Katie Montgomery. Katie Montgomery is British, trans, plays a mean guitar, loves Pokemon, and is the host of the popular YouTube program Turf Wars. Turf Wars, for the last three seasons, has essentially been a clearinghouse of gender-critical anti-trans nonsense. And it, is, and it has found a following not just in the United Kingdom, but worldwide. And we are overjoyed and proud to have Katie Montgomery in our forum. From the southwest of England, we're going to beam her up. Katie Montgomery, welcome to the Transporter Room. Energize. Hi. How are you? Katie, <laughs> I must say as a person who subscribes to Turf Wars and has been a follower of yours for quite some time, it is an honor to have you in my humble forum. Thank oh, well, thank you, you very much for, for having joining me. I'm honored to be here. <laughs> well, first off, I know you say you're not a sports fan, but sports has been in the news a little bit. Did you get yeah. a chance to see what Alana McLaughlin did on Friday night? And if, uh, I mean, did you get a chance at least here? Because I know you've heard about it because you were dunking on Jake Shields too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, everyone had to get a ratio in on Jake Shields. So that, that was the activity of the week, I think. I think he got ratioed by about 15 different people. I did see a summary of it. I vaguely know what happened. I looked up some of the backstory because I knew that it was going to be a new talking point like straight away for the anti-trans crew. Looking at all the different things that are going on right now, and a lot of things are happening in the UK in regards to looking at the Gender Recognition Act, which we're going to get to in a greater detail. But what is the hardest part of being trans in the United Kingdom right now? I think for most trans people, it's access to healthcare. So I know that it's very mixed in the USA and some states you can live in and you once you know you're trans, you can go and talk to a doctor and you can get you know, hormones or access to support and all kinds of things fairly easily if you're in a big city. Uh, but if you're in some states, it's, you know, very difficult. Um, or if you're maybe in the country. In the UK, we have sort of two different ways people can get healthcare. One is um, the NHS. And that's the only option for most people. And then the other option is private healthcare. And you just need a lot of money to do that. And whenever I talk to Americans, I always just want to say the NHS is amazing for everything apart from health, trans healthcare, um, for which it is absolutely horrific. And the waiting lists are six or seven years long to see someone. Um, and then even when you see someone, the system, like they've specifically designed the system to make it go as slow as possible. So it takes you years to get through it. Um, and it's a complete disgrace because most people just cannot access any healthcare, you know, for up to a decade. And that, that's people's lives. That's a huge chunk of someone's life. So that's that's the worst thing. 
But the second worst thing is probably the media, which I guess you wanted to talk about as well. <laughs> well, we'll be getting to that. But one quick thing about the NHS. And what was it like for you navigating that? So for me, I suspect it was about as easy as it could be, but also fucking shit. Sorry, can I swear? <laughs> yes, you can. Oh, heck yes, you can. Okay. Well, Abigail Thorne already shit. did. So go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks for breaking the breaking the way, Abigail. Um, so I um, was very fortunate enough to be able to go private for HRT, um, and um, I I guess I am like a stereotype in a lot of ways. So I went through the system a lot easier than if I was like non-binary or you know if I was like a really um, butch trans woman or something. Because there are still doctors in the system everywhere who will hold you back if you like turn up to a meeting and you're not wearing a dress or you're not wearing makeup or something. I had some Is review. It that, it's that deep in the UK right now? Yeah, it's yeah, that yeah. Deep. In some places, um, it like, I mean, it's easy to encounter people like that, like throughout. I've, I've had all kinds of nonsense run-ins with people before. I, in fact, in order to get um, a gender recognition certificate, which might, we might come on to, um, I had to have some doctor like sign off to say that I had uh, sufficiently feminine accessories like and my dress was like convincingly f female and things like this like complete garbage um so i i was like i had already transitioned by the time i got to the front of the queue so oh. i was already living full time i had um been on hormones for about two years um, I was already like planning surgeries and things, which privately. And um, I saw a doctor and the first appointment, they say, fill in this form. We'll see you in six months. And then in six months, they just want to go from scratch. And they ask you like, you know, have, you know, all the basic stuff that they might ask you. But it's like, I've already seen a private therapist for a whole year. I've already transitioned. I'm already full time at work. And they still just hold you back and hold you back. Um, so I think if, if anyone went through the system easily, it was me, but it just took ages. Um, I waited for 33 months for my first appointment, I think. And, um, I had, yeah. And as I was saying, there was quite a few times where like, I've just had healthcare denied. I, um, one time I told my therapist, my like NHS therapist that you have to see that I was scared about surgery, but I didn't say. Like I just said, I was terrified because it's terrifying. Surgery is terrifying. It's like, you know, anesthetic, you go to sleep, you wake up, you don't know what's going to happen. And she apparently told the doctor that I was considering detransition. And so the doctor rang me up and said, oh, I hear that you're considering detransition and I should stop all your healthcare. It's like, what? Where has this come from? Like, just, I just feel like there's so many roadblocks uh, just constantly. Um, so, yeah, no. I'm sure there are people who have had less crap but i just feel like i must be you know in the top 10 percent easiest people to have gone through the system if that's the top 10 percent, i hate to know what the bottom 90 percent is like i'm just just to get the timeline how far back was this because we're talking dang near what three years just to see someone yeah so it must be something like that so i um i i think was um one of the things I first saw when I was like researching on the internet and like I wasn't even sure if I was necessarily going to transition. I hadn't come out to anyone. You know, I just started talking to a therapist and I saw advice everywhere. If you're in the UK, 
join the queue now. So I joined the queue for the NHS before I had even told any of my friends because I, they were just saying, you know, you're going to wait years and at any time you can just drop out. And then it took me about a year to come out to friends. And then, you know, a couple of years, I just started hormones and went full time and had some time then. Uh, and then finally got to the point where I saw an NHS person. So this was like, I guess I started maybe six years ago or something like that. So um, it's, this is recent. Like they recently did a freedom of information request, which is, I don't know if you have an equivalent in the US, but they found out that the clinic that I went to, the um, waiting list is now six years long. Oh, I've lost sound. Uh, no. So make sure I okay. got this right. A waiting list up to six years. And oh, minimum and for, six at the moment. A minimum six-year waiting list. And when you do show up, you better put on your best Joanna Lumley or Emma Peel, or they're not going to let you through the game. Yeah. I, I know more than one friend who, um, like I know one lady who didn't wear any makeup and wore trousers, you know, just turned up like she might go to work. Yeah. And they said she wasn't trying hard enough and said they were going to hold her back and maybe she should try harder in three months' time. And um, I know another lady who didn't want to come out until she'd had face surgery because she was concerned about passing and her safety and things. And they just didn't do anything and they held her back for a year and she ended up having to go private and do everything private um, just to even see the doctors. They just said, well, we're not going to help you if you don't come out and go full time. So. I and mean, there, were, there were so many stories like this in the UK. The UK is sounding a lot like Texas <laughs> right now. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know that you've got some, like, Arkansas or somewhere like that that's, that's coming for people's well, health care. Yeah, but... it was Arcan yeah, it was Arkansas that passed a ban. Mississippi passed a ban. Texas, some, some 28 states right now are looking at very similar pieces of legislation. But there's also a piece of legislation in the UK, the Gender Recognition Act, the that was first passed back in 2004. Yeah. What exactly is that, and why does it need a modernization? Right. So what it was at the time and what it is today are actually quite different. So in 2004, we didn't have gay marriage in the UK, um, which was obviously is obviously bullshit, and we should, you know, every country should have had gay marriage since the dawn of time. But we didn't have it in 2004. And there was a high-profile court case where a cis man, who was like a millionaire, married a trans woman. And then they had a divorce. And she would have got some of his money, you know, in the divorce settlement. And then his lawyers argued that because she was a trans woman and her birth certificate had an M on it, that technically she was a man and you couldn't have a gay marriage so therefore the whole marriage was annulled and he didn't have to pay her any money. So it was like a classic situation of a rich man screwing over a poor woman. Um, but that kind of sprung off a load of things. Uh, there was like um, a European uh, Court of Human Rights hearing that eventually got to, and basically the government ended up folding and deciding that they had to let trans people have a way of changing their birth certificate for their private privacy and for their ability to get married, uh, to have straight marriages, basically. Um, so originally it was for changing your birth certificate, which then let you get married, it let you die, and it let you have, change your tax records so it would be private, so that no one could just look you up and find out you, that you were trans. But we've since passed 
uh, gay marriage and gay and straight marriage are nearly equal in the UK now. Um, they're not quite. Um, but so that's one of the main reasons has kind of gone away. So you can now marry a man or a woman, um, but it does still affect marriage in that in some jurisdictions, if I wanted to get married today, so I don't have one of these certificates you get from this act, I would have to get married as Mr. Montgomery and they would have to say husband and husband or whatever, which is just completely ridiculous. So I actually know a trans couple who's two trans women and they married and they had to get married as man and wife because one of them had a certificate and the other one didn't. And on a much more sad note, I recently had a friend um, die, a trans woman, and she, you know, was living full time and had been for years and she didn't have one of these certificates and they had to bury her as her man and write on her death certificate that she was a man. I mean, just because that's what the law says. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so the reason that someone might want to get a gender recognition certificate, which is what you get from this law, is so that you could get married or die or sort your taxes, really. So it's not, importantly, what it doesn't do is it doesn't let you update your passport. You, that's a different process. That's a fairly easy process in comparison. It doesn't um, let you use women's spaces or men's spaces if you're a trans man, uh, because we already have a law protecting that, the Equality Act of 2010. And before that, it was protected since 1999. Um, it doesn't allow you access to sports or prisons, or it's about birth certificates. So ID and other things are covered by other laws. Um, so the reason we want it updating is because the system is an absolute fucking joke. So I just filled in the application for this. When I got my passport, which I got five or six years ago, um, to change it from an M to an F, I had to send like a photo. I had to have a note from a professional who said, I, you know, put my reputation on the line. This is Katie Montgomery. I had to have, I had to fill in some like three page form. In a, there was a lot of, there was some paperwork, but it was doable. And I think I had to pay some money. Um, I'm going through and, the US process right now for that. So it's, okay. it sounds very similar. Yeah, so in, in I think it's similar to a lot of US places. Sometimes it's a little worse, sometimes it's a little better, but it's about in line. That was the passport. To get a gender recognition certificate, the form I just filled in was 45 pages. I needed two different doctor's reports, one of which had to be on some special list. Neither of these doctors I'd ever met. I had already had a doctor's report from the NHS and um, a doctor's report from Thailand uh, from like one of the best surgeons in the world, and they don't accept that. Um, they also still needed a detail of every surgery I've ever had in full detail for some reason, describing my genitals. They needed this report that I mentioned earlier of this man saying that I was convincingly feminine. Um, they needed like a statutory declaration, declaration where a lawyer has to watch you sign a form. Like there is so much stuff. You also have to. Um, I've been living full-time for at least two years and you need to provide a piece of evidence from every single year. So I had to find six different pieces of evidence that I had been a woman for the last six years. Um, for, like, this is so that I can just get married and then say, Mrs. Katie Montgomery. Like, this isn't so I can get into space. This isn't so I can get a new passport. It's just a joke. And the system's just like a relic from the past. 
So we want to update it, basically, so that it's about the same as a passport, basically. So what are the modernizations that you want to see? Coming um, out of this process, what do you hope what do you hope is different? Well, I would like um, changing your birth certificate just to be the same as changing your driving license um, around that difficulty, maybe slightly easier, maybe slightly harder. It doesn't really matter if it's just filling in a form and getting a note from a professional, or whatever, that's fine. Um, but also it would be great if it could apply to uh, younger people because at the moment it's only 18 plus and, you know, people might have abusive parents and they might want to transition at 16. Um, also, at the moment, the UK only recognises male and female, and so it doesn't recognise non-binary people, um, so it should do that. Um, and it shouldn't require you to... The, the, one of the key things is, so I've just described how in order to get healthcare, you have to wait six, seven years or whatever. And I transitioned privately, so when I got to the NHS, I had already, um, you know, I'd already done it but you can't apply for a gender recognition certificate until you've basically until you've been through this NHS process, you need a, an official diagnosis from one of their official doctors. So I only really now am I able to get one of these certificates, even though I, this has been my life for, you know, years and years and years. And if I was like engaged to marry someone in my second year of transition, I still wouldn't be able to get married like four years later. Um, you know, well, I could, but then my marriage certificate would have the wrong thing on it. And so that's like, that's one of the main things. The main, one of the main things is, you know, if I was to die now, I'd have to be buried as a man and they'd have to say that and it would upset my family and my friends. And what's the point? Right now, my mind is blown by what I'm hearing. <laughs> it it is. I I've done some reading. I figured it was bad, but this. I mean, this is Dracon. This is Cromwellian Britain in a lot of ways that we're talking about here. Uh, no fun allowed. <laughs> yeah, he was, exactly. I mean, did Oliver Cromwell come back to life? I'm beginning to think that with some of the with some of the archaic rules that we have here. Now, one thing. Is surgery mandatory in all this? No, not technically, though you need to then provide a like good excuse as to why you're not having surgery. Uh, so I do know a lady who's decided not to get surgery and she managed to get a GRC, but um, it's not standard. Like they, they re request it and you have to or provide a good excuse and maybe a doctor's note explaining you need to talk to a good doctor and... There's a lot. I'll admit my mind is just, I figured it was bad, but this is like, this is wow here. It's really and nonsense. And, and what's, what's worse about the Gender Recognition Act is this law doesn't affect that many people in that many ways compared to other things. So obviously the healthcare system, that's the worst. That, that affects every trans person in the country pretty much because you know, everyone wants some form of uh, therapy or medical transition or, um, you know, the, the NHS should be there pro to provide those things. Um, and it isn't. So that's, and, and that's like a much bigger thing. And then also your actual ID, like your passport and your driving license, they're a bigger deal. 
because I show my driving license every time I get ID'd. I still get ID'd sometimes for alcohol, so I'm not that old yet. <laughs> that, I mean, anyway. this is just wild. But yeah, this is, so, but the, this um, is wild here. But yeah, the thing with the, GR, the GRA reform is that, it, I mean, it does make people's lives better. It, it would have made my life not much different yet, but if I wanted to get married, it would. My friend who died, it, you know, it it would have made her um, partner's life better and her family's life better and things if she'd been able to do this. But somehow this update for this law that only really affects trans people and only when they die want to get married or change tax records has become the centre of this like war against trans people in the UK. And um, the media has been attacking from all sides. Like, our media is different to yours. You have like... You know, you have your super crazy stuff on both ends, and then you have kind of more mainstream stuff, but you also generally have this left-right thing. And in the UK, the left and the right are all anti-trans. Um, See, but, that's one thing that, su- that surprises me, even the left. Yeah. That's just, I mean, it just flo- that just floors me. And that's a, that, that leads me to my next question, though. Why is British transphobia so nasty? Oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. Yeah. I, like, whenever I've interacted with US media outlets before, I did something for NBC, and I was expecting them to have a segment where I talked and then have a segment where some transphobic person called me a man. I was I was expecting that. And instead, they just interviewed three trans people, and then it was the end of the segment. I was like, oh, this is different. <laughs> like, wow, they didn't, they didn't platform any hate speech at all. Yeah, the UK, I think there's a number of reasons why it's so bad. Um, our tabloid culture, it, like tabloid newspapers, is particularly bad, and it has been for a long time. They did all the same things they're doing now, often like almost the same headlines word for word about gay people in the 80s and 90s. And the stuff they did then to gay and trans people was just disgusting. You know, to just pick someone and ruin their life or... You use slurs in headlines and all this kind of stuff, and it and it's it's kind of back um, in different ways, and in a lot of the same ways. So I think that is part of it. I think another part of it is um, the UK media is a lot smaller than in the US. Like you, you're a huge country, and you've got these different media outlets, and they're just separate from each other. Ours is very insular. Everyone who writes for the media in general went to the same few schools and they've all worked at different newspapers. You get these journalists who will write for like The Spectator, which is like a borderline far-right paper, and The Guardian. Once once headed by Andrew Neil, who just left JB News. Yeah, exactly. So, And you'll get people and they'll write an article for both in the same week. Also, I think another factor of it, like you mentioned earlier, there are some people involved in this claiming to be feminists, you know, the TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Um, We do have those, though the gender-critical movement's kind of moved away from feminism a bit more now. But I do think Well, of course, since they're they're like palling around with the Heritage Foundation and the Alliance Defending Freedom... Yeah, <laughs> your favorite yeah, transphobes to in mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, like part of that, I wonder is that UK feminism has been able to be like white feminism for a long time because we are um, less culturally diverse. We're a smaller like country. We've been like you know an imperial power for hundreds of years, and um, whereas I think 
the US having maybe more of a turbulent past and a more diverse um, like history and group of people and like cultures and stuff has had to confront um, like white feminism as a concept uh, like sooner. And I think that that feeds into this, this kind of like the only type of woman is a cis white straight woman and everyone else can fuck off is, uh, is quite prevalent here, I think. Well, the, there's a lot of truth to that, even though, unfortunately, turfdom in the United States wears many shades, and in UK it does too. Alison Bailey comes to mind. Yeah. Never invited to the cookout. I mean, with that in mind, if you had to pick a, a top three, you know, like you know you have the British Bake Off, if you had the British Transphobe Off, who's in the top three of that? I have a feeling that the name Pierce Morgan is up there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Pierce Morgan's pretty bad. I think, in a way, you know, Pierce Morgan is um, a contrarian and an attention seeker, and he says things just to wind people up, and he just doesn't care. He's very privileged, he's a knobhead, and he is transphobic to a degree, but he's not as bad as some of them. Like, he he's... He said absolutely transphobic things. I'm, I'm not defending him as a person. I think he's a dickhead. I'm not defending what he said <laughs> at all. But what I'm saying is there are worse people. And it's about trying to work out how much influence they have and how shit a person they are. Like Liz Truss, I, she's one of the worst people. She's, um, so she's our women's inequalities minister and she's like anti-equality. It's like her thing because we've got this. Well, but you know that's that's the Boris Johnson government in a lot of ways. Yes. Uh, yeah. You've got, it's, it's all, you have your own Trump. <laughs> yeah, I mean exactly. I mean, I don't feel like anyone here is quite as bad as Trump, but like we we you know we did our own version of it. Um, so, but yeah, I I think that um, like in the actual gender critical movement, um, there are some people where they have slightly smaller platforms and maybe slightly less credible, but they, you know, like, because they're so much worse, their, like, value on the ranking is a bit higher. Um, it is hard to say. And I, what I'm worried about during a top three is that if they found out I said it, they would be really chuffed. So <laughs> I don't want to give them the credibility. You know, press, medical establishment, the current Johnson government, among those, where are the biggest trans or, or in the gender critical feminist movement, as I like to call them? Where are you finding the biggest transphobes? Where are you finding the people that that are, in a sense, leading the charge? Oh, definitely the gender critical movement, hands down. Um, there are gender critical people working in the press, and there are gender critical people working in um, the healthcare system, which is terrifying, and like in the police and stuff. Um, but that's what makes them bad is that they're part of this gender critical like movement or cult or conspiracy theory, however you want to look at it. The, the Boris Johnson government is bad, but it doesn't really care about trans people. Like it will use this as like a tool to drum up fear, but they're more fo focused on immigrants and poor people. And, uh, you know, they, they focus on a lot of things. They're bad. So as a group, they're worse, you know, they hurt more people. But if we're just talking about trans people, they're less focused on us. So, but on the but the other side doesn't seem to be better. I I read something a few days ago that Labour threw out someone because they stuck up for trans people, or they <laughs> censured someone for 
Just yes, just saying that trans is, people are people. They had um, they had two Labour people speak up in one day. One of them said they have gender critical beliefs and they want to ban um, trans kids from the toilets at school, like just disgusting things that they said. And then some other lady said, "Oh, I support trans people and trans rights." And Labour did an investigation on her, apparently. Um, though it was then rescinded and they weren't sure who sent the actual complaint in initially because it was all badly spelt and it came in at midnight or something. Something suspicious is going on there. Um, and like in our other left-wing party, or one of our other left-wing parties, the Green Party, they just had a thing where the Green Party officially submitted this really transphobic report to the Scottish government and then when confronted on it, none of them admitted to sending it. And the women's inequalities group of this Green Party are like, we didn't send this. Someone else has sent this on our behalf. So something else weird is going on there. And, you know, it's, it's just a mess. I, if, yes, I remember I saw the footage a couple of weeks ago of the, of the gender critical protest outside of Holly Road. And, right. yeah. and it was, I mean... When, I, when I'm not running a podcast or not writing about sports or writing about other things, I am a crisis operator for Trans Lifeline, 24-hour-a-day helpline here in yeah. the United States. And we've gotten calls. I've gotten some calls from the UK, especially yeah, from surprised. young people. I mean, yeah, that's one thing. You're an adult. And it's hard for and it yeah. and I know it's probably hard on you. I mean, you've you've gotten threats, you've gotten gender criticals coming to your grill, coming to your Twitter space. I've read it, I've seen it. Yeah. But what's it like for the young people, especially? I know it's just terrific that that you can't go online, you can't go in the news, you can't watch TV or anything without seeing something about how trans people are all secretly perverts and they're going they should be banned from public spaces and. They shouldn't have trans healthcare. So last year, um, they banned trans healthcare for under 16s, just like out of nowhere in this minor court case with an absolutely terrible decision with like no evidence. And it's like, what do these kids do? You know, I know some families who had children who were like stealth. So they were like, you know, nine years old or something or 12 years old, and they've been out living as themselves for years and they're, you know, they're just a normal kid at school. And then all of a sudden they're being told, oh, you're actually going to have to go through this, you know, you're going to have to turn into something else. You're going to have to go through the wrong puberty and suffer for it because some ridiculous decision. And then on top of that, there's a national campaign to make you look like a predator. I, I don't know. Like sometimes I wish like I could have been younger today and come out where there's more support and there's more knowledge of trans people. But on the other hand, I do feel like there's more like hatred and backlash at the same time. And I don't know. I mean, there, there, it was, it was grim when I was a kid and it stopped me coming out then. So I, you know, I have a lot of respect for the kids who are able to come out. Well, to talk about that a little bit. What, yes. what got you from A to B to T? What got you here? Because there's some, I, I asked that partially because the first time I, I ran across, right, my path crossed yours on Twitter. It was during the time when you were near it, you were nearing one of those milestone moments in your own process. And you looked happy, you looked content, 
you looked whole. And given that you were, and given where you were celebrating, I was kind of jealous. What, what got you to that point? What, what right. was your process like? So, I mean, I guess I knew in the, as a kid in the sense that I always just always wanted to be a girl. Like, why, why wouldn't you want to be a girl? They're obviously just better. <laughs> but I also knew that trans people are disgusting failures and losers and stuff. And that is it. That was my only understanding of what trans people were. So I was like, well, I can't be one of those. Um, and we had this law. I know earlier you mentioned Margaret Thatcher. Um, we had this law when I grew up at, at school for the whole of my schooling life. Section 28. Section is that it? Yeah, Section yeah, 28. Which banned schools from talking about LGBT people at all. Um, so, you know, being gay was an insult at school. And we, like, in my school of like a thousand people, no one came out the whole time I was at school. Um, well, like, understandably, because it was just so hostile. It was just the news was horrible about gay people and just everything. Um, and it took me a long time to kind of deal with that. Like I, I would, I would say that I was just transphobic and homophobic when I was, you know, younger, as a young, like really young teenager, like thirteen or something. And then I think I started. I, I analysed gay rights first, and I just thought, this is ridiculous. There are these people who just love people, and they're being punished for it. This is disgusting. And then after some thinking and some consideration, I was like aggressively pro gay rights and that kind of led me to feminism and then feminism led me to understanding about trans people more um but i think what what the two like major things that broke me i guess <laughs> made, like got me to come out was um i saw this documentary by louis through called transgender children um which probably today maybe isn't that great but at the time for me it was like the first thing i'd ever seen where trans people were treated like normal people. And it, like they had these kid, trans kids in it and all these trans adults in it and people were just friends with them and they were just normal and they had normal jobs and their families loved them. And I just thought, oh, I didn't know that was possible. And that caused me to go and look it up more. And then I discovered some trans people on YouTube um, and they were just normal you know, like normal, the idea of normal is rubbish, but at the same time, they were just people like me. And I just thought, oh, fuck, this is me now. <laughs> like, and that, that was scary. It's a scary realization to, to like, oh, this is, this is, this is me. No. <laughs> but so that, you know, that's how I got through. And I think that just, it's why I think that um, representation or exposure to trans people is just so important because it br I was tr still transphobic then. I still thought trans people were all losers and all perverts and stuff. And all it took was me seeing normal trans people just talking about their lives. And it just destroyed that. It destroyed that prejudice. So, Now, with that in mind, is that what, in a sense, did that lead you to start Turf Wars? <laughs> I, <laughs> I guess I like arguing. I'm kind of addicted to arguing. Um, I also argue about religion. Um, I do a show called Talk Heathen and another one called um, The Line where people can call in with their religious beliefs and I just argue about them. Um, and I guess, you know, as a kid, I was a bit argumentative too. And I just, I like the 
the structure of it all. And also then when I got into gay rights and feminism, like I spent a lot of time arguing when Australia was considering legalising gay marriage. I just got sucked, like addicted to going on the internet and arguing with Australians about why gay people should be allowed to love each other. And um, then when I came out, I just, like, you, I just see someone and they're wrong. You know, they'll just say, trans people or all this. And I'm like, that's factually incorrect. Here's a source. And they were like, nah. and then they say something stupid. And then I'm just like, turn around to everyone, you know, I'll show up on my, on my Twitter and be like, this person just said something stupid. And somehow me just being addicted to arguing and like showing the results of it uh, has got me to uh, 40,000 followers or something. I, I don't know why people like that, but and then I just thought, I was finding that with my cis friends, because I often don't talk about trans stuff. I try and keep it to like the internet and then I can have a break and just be myself without worrying about rights and stuff when I come offline. And I found that when my friends would ask me, they'd be like, tell me about what's going on in the world of trans people. And then I'll just go off in this like two hour rant. I'll be like, <laughs> this week you should have seen what this person said. And I start getting our screenshots. And I was just like, I need to have an outlet for this that isn't my poor cis friends who don't know what a Graham Linehan is. Um, and <laughs> so he needs a I, job. That's what he is. <laughs> He's a man in need of a job. He needs a job and a wife and a, um, I don't know, a wank. And, and an, <laughs> I mean, for yourself, talking about all these things and I, and like I'm a regular watcher of turf wars and week after week uh, I mean there's face palms there's face palms week oh, after week yeah I'm just wondering for you with all the stuff you deal with and the way people come at you and misgender you and just just come at you and it just seems like it's nonstop where do you find your trans girl joy <laughs> right so in in normal non-lockdown times, um, you know, I'll argue in the week and then I will go out on the weekend and I'll go to a gig and I'll hang out with my friends and go to a party and have lunch and just do like normal stuff. And I'm very lucky to have a lot of good friends that I can just do stuff all weekend, every weekend. I've had some pretty manic weekends recently because in the UK it's starting to open up and we can start doing things. So like I've tried to cram in like three birthday parties in one weekend or something. And that just resets me because when you're told every single day, like, like, Oh, you're a man, you look like a man. Like people are just lying. They just pretend to like you, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill you or whatever, you know, they sell this stuff. And then you go out to the pub and you meet a group of people like who you've never met before. And they're all like instantly nice to you. And you just have a fun night out and every single person you interact with is just nice. And I just think it's like um, a vaccination for the, the week coming, you know, it just cured. Like, I just feel like, Oh, remember on the weekend when that like lady grabbed my hand and took me into the girl's toilets to like ask me makeup tips or tell me about her boyfriend or something. And like in the gender critical world that could not happen. Because, oh, everyone sees me as a violent male. And it's just like, it's nonsense. The real life is just nothing like, you know, what they're saying. Also being in a band and also just seeing live music. Like, live music is my, my main thing. Well, I know one thing. Another thing I know you for is, like, you can do it on a guitar. In fact, you've inspired me to start taking guitar lessons. 
Oh, so, thank you. <laughs> but oh, I just want to know when's the next time you're gonna when's the next time we're gonna see some vi video of Katie Montgomery rocking it out? When are we gonna see well, her? Yeah, hopefully soon. Um I keep saying yes to loads of stuff and I haven't time to do like pre-recorded videos. Basically, my band has another album coming out hopefully this year. Um so I will do a music video for that, I suspect. And I've also got some more plans to do some pre-recorded <laughs> YouTube videos. Um, I'm going to do something describing everything that I've encountered on my way in terms of healthcare in the UK. Um, and then going to have loads of shred guitar interludes and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, I can tell you when that video drops, I want to be able to, hey, I want to play it. I want to play it on my show. In fact, I like I want you back on here at some point. And I want to make I want to make a pitch. If you ever have yeah. a guest on ever need a guest on Turf Wars to give an a, a perspective from our side of the pond, I volunteer as tribute. Well, I will step I am into considering, that. I will step know, I will step into that. We've been on season 3 for a while and I'm thinking what can I do for season 4 to shake things up i enjoyed the show and i enjoyed Thank having you. you i enjoyed having you here yeah and i enjoyed I do, being here thanks for and i want to tell you something just know that and i also want to let your audience especially in the uk to know that on this side of the pond we have your back we're fighting our own fight and we're fighting a lot of our struggles but we know this is a transatlantic alliance for our people yeah and for our liberation and we have your back. We have all of your back. Now, well, I just want I mean, you to same. know that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I do feel like there's this kind of international trans solidarity, um, you know, for much easier with English speaking countries because I can see any language I can speak. But like, I feel it from the Canadians and the Americans and the Australians. And, and I do feel it from Europeans and, and other countries around the world. Um, you know, but they're not going to be able to stop us. <laughs> so we, we've got this. I mean, you've got like national trans politicians now. Belgium has like a deputy prime minister who's a trans woman. Like we're smashing this. <laughs> Twenty years time, we'll be eleven and a half, mate. It'd be great. <laughs> will, will that mean we'll have a prime minister, Katie Montgomery? Uh, I do feel like. The UK is probably more than 20 years away from having a trans politician, <laughs> but maybe I could um, move to a, another country. Maybe when Scotland becomes independent, Scotland might have a trans politician. So, <laughs> Katie, thank you for joining me on the Transporter Room. Thank, thank you, you for me. being here. And like I said, we want you back. If you need a guest, I'll make myself available. Amazing. It'll be that okay. important. Katie, thank you. We're going to beam you back down to the southwest of England. Energize. And thank you all for joining me this week on the Transporter Room. And this is this was a very special show, our hundredth and first edition. We had a lot of trans star power, and I was glad to bring it to you. And if you like what you saw or didn't like what you saw, or have a comment, if there's something you want to see or something you want to say, please leave a message on our Twitter page or our Facebook page. Remember. From the beginning through 101 episodes, everything I do, I do for you, the people who support us. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb, and that's the Transporter Room this week. 
Live long and prosper. Steady as she goes. I'll catch you next week.